The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. God, I'm thankful that you are in complete control of all things. As we think about the week that many in our body are, are having with, with the passing of people who are both easily recognizable to our body and people who are new to our body. It can be easy to forget that you are in control of all things. So I pray this morning as we, as we read through your word that we would simply be amazed at your desire and design for our lives. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. On Halloween, on Halloween morning, I was reminded of, of just how terrible of a mind reader I am. And not just a terrible mind reader, but I am really terrible at ascribing motive to the actions and activities of other people. This all sort of began on that Tuesday morning with Westway's Bible reading plan. There were a couple texts that I just want to share with you. The first one is in Philippians 1 verses 15 to 18. And it says this, it's true that some are preaching out of jealousy and rivalry, but others preach about Christ with pure motives. They preach because they love me, because they know I have been appointed to defend the good news. Those others do not have pure motives as they preach about Christ. They preach with selfish ambition, not sincerely, intending to make my change more painful to me. But that doesn't matter. Whether their motives are false or genuine, the message about Christ is being preached either way, so I rejoice. The next text was Matthew 6, verse 34. It says this, So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. And then lastly was Matthew 7, verses 1 to 5. Do not judge others and you will not be judged. For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First, get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will see well enough to deal with a speck in your friend's eye. So I read those three verses, and then I read the devotional thought for that day. And I'm just going to share very briefly from that. Many people spend far too much of their precious time trying to discern the thoughts and intentions of others. I have heard and have often done this myself, people who speak about large churches and the people who run them, not just whether or not they like them, not simply surface critique, but a discussion about their heart and motive. Motive is something we can't know or control in others. 
Paul told us he doesn't even concern himself with the motive of other preachers as long as they preach Jesus. And Jesus knew we would have a propensity to get bogged down in things we can't control. He knew that we would gravitate towards solving the problems of others. He offers us another way, a way of less burden and worry. So with that on my mind, I went out for my Tuesday morning, early a.m. run. Ran up to uh, Five Rocks Road, started going south. And over the past couple years, there's kind of a new road that's, that's cut up through the neighborhood where we live that brings someone right up there to Avenue I. And because I had been chastised by a certain elder's wife the previous week about wearing dark clothes when I go for a run in the morning, uh, this particular Tuesday morning, I was wearing a very reflective jacket. I had a headlamp on. I had a, a reflective tag around my ankle. And as I'm approaching this road, this truck drives up to the top of the road. And I'm probably 25 yards, 20 yards away from the road. And because I have a bright light on my head, I, I turn and surely this person can see me. And as I get closer and closer, this is when I've kind of cued myself that I have to be careful about drivers. And the closer I got, the longer he sat there until he finally went right in front of me. I won't tell you what I said, and I'm not even going to tell you what it rhymed with. But my next thought was, so that's how it's going to be today, God. And as I'm continuing my run, I'm like, you know what? What if legitimately the person didn't see me? So then I said words that I sort of regret for how the rest of my day went. I said, God, what I would like for you to do today, I would like for you to gently point out to me when I ascribe motive to other people. That's a dangerous exercise, by the way. So I got home, got in my car. Well, I didn't, I took a shower first. Did my normal Tuesday morning routine, started driving to work, and I started listening to, to the Bible app, to the Dwell app, and I was listening to scripture, and it was 1 Kings chapter 1 and then 1 Kings uh, chapter 2, and it's this period of life, uh, at, or this period of time at the end of David's life where he's old and he can't stay warm, and right there in 1 Kings chapter 1, it talks about how he can't stay warm, so what they did was they found him a beautiful virgin to lay next to him in bed. Which we can all be honest and say, like, that's a little creepy. But then I started, okay. Man, I'm kind of guilty of ascribing motive here. I'm kind of guilty of this mind reading. And then it flips over to uh, 1 Kings chapter 2. And it's the scene where David's on his deathbed. And it's one of my favorite scenes in the Bible. And he's, he's, re he's, he's telling Solomon, basically he's, he's a mafia don on his deathbed. And he's telling Solomon all, the names of all of the people that he wants him to kill. Because in David's life, he, he promised he wouldn't kill these people. But now that David's dying and Solomon's going to be the king, David's like, kill this person, kill this person, kill this person. And the motive just comes to my mind. How much mind reading is taking place. And then thankfully God was gracious and, and gave me a break for the rest of the day on Tuesday until I was driving home after trunk or treat on Tuesday night. I got, went underneath the, the railroad bridge, started driving up the hill 
in the gearing and I could see I could see police lights on the road in front of me. And as I'm as I'm pulling up to the intersection, the car in front of me turns up Country Club. And I don't I don't see anyone. I see the police car sitting there, sort of in the middle of the road, but really off to the side. And my assumption was that this deputy had pulled someone over. That was just kind of my assumption. So I started to proceed very slowly through the intersection and out of nowhere, literally out of nowhere, this deputy comes running out and he goes, turn there. I rolled my window down and I said, I'm sorry, I didn't know. What do you mean you don't know? Turn there. And then I thought to myself, that's what it's like to have someone ascribe motive to you. Like the circle was complete in that moment. And, and I went home and I was just very, it was a good day. Let me put it that way. One of the things that I've tried to convince you of is that conviction by God is a gift. Especially when we recognize it as such. Especially when we see that what God is trying to do is, is help us to be something else. Creating us a new creature. And the reality is living in the shadows of what other people might think about us is a very dangerous exercise. And what happens is we often, we often fill that well with anger and bitterness and then we drink of it all day long. As we think about what other people might be thinking, might be saying, might be doing. For the Christian, it's very dangerous to live in this space. There's a pastor by the name of Steve Cuss. I wish I had a name like that. Cuss, that'd be awesome. Um, his quote is this. If we are prone to needing people to like us, this can quickly become a nightmare because we feel compelled to act on the meaning we're making. For the Christian leader, this can be devastating to live in this space. The church at Corinth was very dysfunctional. Which, which voices should we listen to as leaders in the church? Which preferences should we cater to as leaders within the church? See, the root issue at the church in Corinth was not that they didn't get along. The root issue of the church in Corinth was they, they misconceived the gospel. They thought the gospel was one thing, but they misconceived it. And they misconceived it in a few different ways. They misconceived what true wisdom was. They thought they would find wisdom in the philosophies and mindsets and debaters of the world. So Paul told them that true wisdom comes from God and it's displayed through the cross of Jesus Christ. They misconceived salvation thinking that they discovered it on their own because of their worldly wisdom. Because we are so smart, we figured out how to be saved. And Paul told them that the only reason they knew who Christ was was because God revealed it to them. They misconceived the role of Christian workers. They thought that it was leaders who grew a church. And Paul told them in that instance that that's just evidence of your immaturity. They misconceived how the church was built, thinking that what they really needed was a dynamic speaker who didn't say things like Holloway instead of Halloween. 
Paul told them that this was building on the foundation of Christ with things that would not survive the fire. Things like wood and straw and hay. See, Paul will later say in 1 Corinthians 10 that I think we'll be at some point three years from now at the pace we're going. Paul tells them in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that the things that happen in the Old Testament were written down as an example and as a warning for the people in this day so that they would learn from those mistakes and they would not make those same mistakes. And as we think about scripture, that phrase that we use, the Bible is not written to us, but it's written for us, that's what this means. We have access to this text, and it's not because the Bible is a mother goose fairy tale. What Paul is saying in the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians is this. When churches function in this way, or rather they dysfunction, when churches dysfunction in this way, it puts the reputation of the church on the line. The way that people perceive Christ is put on the line. And ultimately, what Paul is making all of this about is salvation. Salvation is at stake when churches fail to understand the gospel. When churches get wrapped up in all of these kinds of dysfunctions, salvation of other people is at stake. And I want to remind you that, that we're not going through 1 Corinthians. I said this very, the very first week. We're not going through 1 Corinthians because we perceive that there's some big divisive issue taking place here. We're going through 1 Corinthians because we want to see what an unhealthy church looks like, what a dysfunctional church looks like, what dysfunctional behaviors look like, so we don't fall into that trap. Because Corinth was Corinth. They just, they just did it. We want to be a body that lives out the realities of what a church ought to be, what Christ tells us. So a question that we ought to ask is, well, well how can we know? What is, what's the measurement of that reality? Well, today's text, 1 Corinthians 4 Verses 1 to 5, that's on page 712 on that, in that Bible in the seat back in front of you. 1 Corinthians 4 verses 1 to 5 tells us clearly that the measurement for a healthy church is faithfulness. That's the measurement. Let's read the text. So look at Apollos and me as mere servants of Christ who have been put in charge of explaining God's mysteries. Now, a person who's put in charge as a manager must be faithful. As for me, it matters very little how I might be evaluated by you or by any human authority. I don't even trust my own judgment on this point. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't prove I'm right. It is the Lord himself who will examine me and decide. So don't make judgments about anyone ahead of time before the Lord returns. For he, will, for he will bring our darkest secrets to light and will reveal our private motives. Then God will give to each one whatever praise is due. 
So as we read through these five verses, we see that, that faithfulness is really defined in three ways. The first is humility. The second is trustworthiness. And the third is the knowledge that God is the final judge. Let's talk a little bit about humility from this text. See, Paul and Apollos are not in competition with one another. They're not competing against one another. They're merely servants of God who have been given the task of explaining the gospel of God. The gospel is the saving work of Jesus. We're sinners. We need a savior. We won't find it in any other place, in any other thing, but the person of Jesus. That is the message that Paul and Apollos are called to give. They're not in competition with one another. And what the church in Corinth is trying to do is it's trying to set them against one another. It's trying to have them compete to pick and choose. America's got talent. Corinth's got talent. Which one of you is the best speaker? And what Paul is saying here, this is not a competition. It's humility. Look at Apollos and me as mere servants of Christ. We serve Christ. That's our role. We just do what God tells us to. In 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 to 9, we read this last week. After all, who is Apollos? Who is Paul? We are only God's servants through whom you believed the good news. Each of us did the work the Lord gave us. I planted the seed in your hearts and Apollos watered it, but it was God who made it grow. It's not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What's important is that God makes it grow. The one who plants and the one who waters work together with the same purpose. They're not in competition with one another. They work together with the same purpose. And both will be rewarded for their own hard work. For we are both God's workers and you are God's field. You are God's building. So as we think about humility, as we think about the way humility interfaces with faithfulness, I have a few questions. How important is it to you that someone receive the credit for what's taking place in our church? How important is it for you that someone receive credit? Not just someone, the right someone. Not just anyone, the right person. How important is it for me, how important is it for you that we personally receive the credit for what's taking place in God's church? Are we serving to be seen are we doing the things that we're doing so that others will notice us, so that others will appreciate us, so that others will come up to us and tell us how thankful they are for us? 
without a doubt, part of the thing that, one of the things that we are trying to do here at Westway is have a culture of appreciation. We want people to feel like what they're doing matters. But that's dramatically different than doing things, seeking that approval, seeking that affirmation, seeking that appreciation. See, in Paul's mindset, God, through Paul, is saying it just doesn't matter. We're just, you know, we're just servants. There's something that needs to be done, and we just need to do it. And not worry about who gets the credit. Because neither Paul nor Apollos wanted to be elevated. They didn't want that space where they're under the microscope of people. They just wanted to serve. They just wanted to do what God had called them to do. So humility matters. Humility is a measure of faithfulness. Here's the next measure of faithfulness. It's trustworthiness. Trustworthiness. Trustworthiness is about doing what you're supposed to do with what you have. Doing what you're supposed to be doing, when you're supposed to be doing it, where you're supposed to be doing it, how you're supposed to be doing it. And each and every Christian, each and every Christian has been given the task and a responsibility to be stewards of the resources that God has given us. And that is not just about money. It is about money, but it's not just about money. God has given us the things that he has given us so that we would steward it, so that we would use it. So we would demonstrate his goodness through the things that he has given us. See, we each have gifts and talents and skills. And God has given us these things so that we can add onto the foundation of Jesus Christ. That's our job. I didn't say this a few weeks ago when we were going through chapter 3. I wrote it in my Bible. I heard it a while ago. Talking about that, that building, one of the things that we often say is the, the church isn't a building, it's a people. And that's true. But then I heard this. The church is a building and you are the bricks. See, we, the body of Christ, is what builds the church. We build the church. God uses us to build the church. God uses our gifts and our talents and our skills and our money to build the church. And we can build with wood, straw, and hay, or we can build with silver, gold, and precious jewels. And one of those things is not going to last. Jesus talks about in, or excuse me, Paul talks about in chapter 3. That when the end comes, when Christ returns, there's going to be a testing. There's going to be a fire. And something's going to get burned up. And something's going to last. I want to read Luke 12, verses 35 to 48 to you. That's on page 649. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says this. Be dressed for service and keep your lamps burning as though you are waiting for your master to return from the wedding feast. Then you will be ready to open the door and let him in the moment he arrives and knocks. The servants who are ready and waiting for his return will be rewarded. 
I tell you the truth, he himself will seat them, put on an apron, and serve them as they sit and eat. He may come in the middle of the night or just before dawn, but whenever he comes, he will reward the servants who are ready. Understand this, if a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he would not permit his house to be broken into. You also must be ready all the time, for the Son of Man will come when least expected. I love the question that Peter asks next. Lord, is that illustration just for us or for everyone? And the Lord replied, A faithful, sensible servant is one to whom the master can give the responsibility of managing his other household servants and feeding them. If the master returns and finds that the servant, you know who the servant is, right? We know the servant's us. We know the master's God. We know that we've each been given something. We've each been given a task to perform, a role to do. If the master returns and finds that the servant has done a good job, there will be a reward. I tell you the truth, the master will put that servant in charge of all he owns. But what if the servant thinks, my master won't be back for a while, and he begins beating the other servants, partying and getting drunk? The master will return unannounced and unexpected, and he will cut the servant in pieces and banish him with the unfaithful. And a servant who knows what the master wants but isn't prepared and doesn't carry out those instructions will be severely punished. But someone who does not know and then does something wrong will only be punished lightly. When someone has been given much, much will be required in return. And when someone has been entrusted with much, even more will be required. See, because... We have the fullness of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We have a lot of things from God. I would argue that we have everything we need from God to function in the way that he's called us to function. Whatever that gift, talent, skill is for you, you have exactly what you need. And the question that has to be asked is, are we taking that responsibility seriously? Do we know what God has called us to? Do we understand our gifts and our talents and our skills and our money? We, do we understand that these things are meant to be stewarded for the kingdom of God? And not just, not just what I put in the box on Sunday morning. Not just what I key as a number if I do online giving. Like, that's one way to steward your finances, but we're called to steward all of our finances. We're called to utilize everything we have for the glory of God, everything we have for the glory of God. And that ought to cause us to put in, call into question everything that we do. Before we, before we do anything, is this going to glorify God? How is this going to glorify God? And I think there are times at least in my life, where I've compartmentalized, like this is God's and this is awful, like this is mine. But God has given us all things to be stewarded by him. So that means, that means the way I use my car needs to reflect the reality that it's a gift of God. That means the way, the way I eat food 
ought to reflect the fact that God has steward, given me a body. The way I use the house that I have ought to reflect that. All of these things, we are to use all of them. So that question, are you taking your responsibility seriously? Are you trustworthy? Are you a trustworthy servant? When the master leaves, do you beat all of your fellow servants and get drunk and party? If that's what you do, that is not a trustworthy servant. I'll be more direct. As a person who is a servant, is everyone else around you serving while you are not? Why is that? How are you going to be found when the master returns? Because he's coming. We don't know when. We're going to be ready. So faithfulness is measured by humility. Faithfulness is measured by trustworthiness. And faithfulness is measured by the fact that God is ultimately the judge of our actions and other actions and others' motives. One of the things I love so much about these few verses is that Paul's purpose and deepest desire is that he is found faithful. That's what Paul wants. So look at Paulus and me as mere servants of Christ who have been put in charge of explaining God's mysteries. Now a person who is put in charge as a manager must be faithful. There are a lot of words Paul could have put in there. Successful. Paul could have added that. Could have said fruitful. What he says is faithful. And his deepest desire is not whether or not the people in Corinth or the people that he ministers to and disciples to and proclaims the truth to. He is not concerned about whether or not they approve of him. It's not on the list. And to our ears, this likely sounds cocky and arrogant of Paul, that he doesn't care about what anybody thinks of him. I've shared this before many years ago. Anne had this nickname for me. It was the snowplow. I would get my mind made up on something. And what I would do is I would lower the blade and I hit the accelerator and I just didn't care. I'm a snowplow. And that's not Paul here. What we're seeing in Paul is something completely different. We're seeing a mature and differentiated leader who is not going to allow the misconceptions on the part of the people that he is proclaiming the truth to. He's not going to allow their misunderstanding of the gospel to get in the way of his role. He's not going to do it. Just because they don't understand all of the things of the gospel, just because they're picking sides, he's not going to play along with them. Because Paul and Apollos actually have the responsibility as servants to lead the church. See, Paul and Apollos actually have a job to do. And that's to be faithful. That's to lead the church. That's to proclaim the gospel. And what's fascinating at the church in Corinth is, is they are, they're blaming the leaders for their own issues. 
Rather than acknowledging that they are sinners who don't understand the gospel, it's much easier to just blame Paul because he's not as great of a speaker as Apollos. It's much easier to say, oh, if only Apollos were here. If only Paul did this. If only Apollos did that. If only Peter said this. See, what this church is trying to do is they're trying to blame Paul. But Paul's not the problem. Apollos isn't the problem. The problem is the people who don't understand the gospel. And what's interesting is very early in this letter, in chapter 1, verse 11, it says this. For some members of Chloe's household have told me about your quarrels, my dear brothers and sisters. What's interesting about this is not everyone in Corinth is acting like a crazy person. See, there's one house church, Chloe's household, that, that is aware of all of this, and they do something amazing. And this is why the Bible's not a morality tale for us. Chloe's household actually writes a letter and tells Paul about it. Chloe's household tells Paul about what's going on. They actually take to the person who can fix the problem, the reality of the problem. They pass it along. And what Paul does is he writes him a letter. He's going to fix it. Paul doesn't play this game with them. Paul doesn't get wrapped up in what they think of him, be evaluated by him. I said earlier that Paul is a, Paul is a mature, differentiated leader. And my students from my Christian leadership principles class will appreciate this conversation. Paul knows two things about himself. And if you, if you could grasp these things about you, I think it would change your life. The first thing is this. Paul, is not, Paul knows that he is not as terrible as his critics make him out to be. He knows that he is not as terrible as his critics make him out to be. Whatever they have against him, he knows he's not that bad. And the funny thing is, he's actually worse. See, the people don't like Paul because Paul doesn't speak like Apollos. But if they knew about the thorn in his side, if they knew what Paul thought about, if, if they knew what Paul considered about them behind their back, they would really hate him. But Paul knows that he is not as terrible as his critics make him out to be. But then there's a second part of this. Paul is not as great as his biggest fans think he is. You see how those two things work together? I think for some of us, we live in this space where we have critics and we have convinced ourselves that we are as bad as our worst critics say we are. We're just as bad. This person doesn't like me for this reason and I am just a terrible person. But then I also think there are some people who think they are just as great as their biggest fans think they are. And both of those people are completely wrong. And Paul knows this. Paul knows who he is. And he's very comfortable with that. And what's interesting about this is Paul says that he doesn't even judge himself. 
It's not that he's not a value. He can't be, just be unevaluated by, by everyone in the church. Paul doesn't even evaluate himself, which is a mature, differentiated person. Because Paul knows his own tendencies. Paul's familiar with the book of Judges. We read this phrase several times a few years ago when we went through the book of Judges. The people did what's right in their own eyes. See, Paul doesn't do what's right in his own eyes. Because what Paul knows is people who do what's right in their own eyes, there's fruit of that and it's chaos, death, and destruction. So Paul doesn't even consider judging himself. He doesn't even consider evaluating himself. Because what if he's wrong? Paul knows who he is. Paul doesn't trust his conscience to be the guide. That's um, it's Jiminy Cricket. And always let your conscience be your guide. That is literally the worst advice ever. Here's the modern translation. Follow your heart. There's junk advice. See, Paul doesn't let his conscience be his guide. He wrote this in Romans 12.3. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. Other translations say something to the effect of consider yourselves with sober judgment. Now, this is not talking about alcohol, so don't think sober that way. But I think there's a good illustration there. Because people who consider themselves with drunk judgment have a faulty understanding of who they are, right? They either think they're way better than they are or they think they are way worse than they are. And what Paul is calling the church in Rome to and the church at Corinth to is to be honest. Because God is the judge. See, Paul is not living for the approval of the church in Corinth. He doesn't need their affirmation. Paul's question is, does God approve? This ought to be our question. Does God approve? God is the judge. And as we read in chapter 3 two weeks ago, fire is going to reveal the quality of our workmanship. So don't you, Paul says, don't make judgments about anyone. Don't you, 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 don't make judgments about anyone before the Lord returns. And you know what that word means? You know what that means? It means ever. Don't ever make judgments about anyone. Not even when someone pulls out in front of you on the road. Because not every person who drives faster than you is a maniac and not every person who drives slower than you is a moron. I said not all of them. See, we have to understand as Christians that it's not just our actions and our words that are going to be subject to the judgment of God. It's not just our actions and our words that are going to vindicate or condemn us. It's our motives God is going to use our motives to vindicate, vindicate or condemn us. 
God is going to judge our intentions to vindicate or condemn us. Which means we might serve out of a faulty motive. And I hate to tell you this, but God knows. If your serving is designed for you to be seen by others, God knows. Everything that we do is going to be evaluated. And we will each be rewarded accordingly. So the questions, are you humble? How important is it to you that someone, you, me, receive credit for what's taking place? Do we do things to be seen by others? Are we trustworthy? Are we taking that responsibility that, God, that we have, that God has given us, to steward what he's given us? Are we responsible with it? How will we be found when the master returns? And then lastly, are we living in the knowledge of the reality that God alone is judge? And he's not just judging my actions or my words or my thoughts, but he's judging that of others as well. Are we willing to give up our right to judge? I'm in this Facebook group of pastors called Preach the Word. And each Sunday morning, a guy who I don't know sends me a, sends me a Facebook message. And it's a prayer for the day. This one came at 2.55 this morning. I know that because I was awake at 2.55 this morning. And I'm going to read his prayer it's amazing the way God works. Not knowing what I was going to preach on, not knowing what you were going to hear today. Just close your eyes and bow your heads and let's pray. Lord, the power in the church is not in the words that are sung, nor is it in the melody and rhythm of the music. The power is not, not in having the right lighting or hitting the right switch, or showing the right video, or the right image on the screen at the right time. The power does not come from a great speaker behind the pulpit, or a great singer behind the microphone, or wearing a nice outfit, or looking beautiful, or handsome. The power does not come because the guitar player is excellent, or the drummer keeps the right beat, or the piano player hits all the right notes. The world does all of those things and often does them better than we could hope to. Yet the world has no power to change lives and produce righteousness. It has no power to create lasting peace. It has no power to make a dent in eternity. Eternity is not moved by anything we do through our own skill or talent or training or giftedness. But you, Lord... You give light where there is darkness. You bring glory where once there was gloom. You birth a new creation in the hearts and minds of those who respond to your spirit. In you, the supernatural takes hold and flourishes. The sound of praise echoes through the corridors of heaven. Angels rejoice and all heaven rocks with joy as they watch. All creation erupts with your power. Because you have the power, 
and through you power is given. I ask that you would give it to our body. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.